So hi everyone, welcome to Architecture in the Den with me your host Lisa Rains from Pride Road, the Architecture Practice Franchise and today I'm delighted to welcome Dominic Haley. So we've had a few chats about our subject. Um, we have. Hint, hint. Um, <laughs> Shelby, would you like to introduce yourself to start off with? Thank you. Hi Lisa, nice to see you again. Uh, hi everybody. Uh, listening in. Yes, my name is Dominic Haley. I'm an architect with Collado Collins. We're a firm of 35 odd people based in central London, working mostly for commercial developer clients, which is probably a slightly different avenue to the Pride Road franchise. But through the chats Lisa and I have been having, there's a real correlation between a lot of the ways we approach the business of business, the business of making money through it. So I'm looking forward to Lisa hitting me with some questions that we haven't really we haven't really rehearsed anything specific. You've given me a framework to work in, Lisa. So I've got some notes and maybe yeah. we'll touch on some of that. But yeah, I'm looking forward to a chat about the realities of making a living as an architect. Yeah, that's right. So in our introduction, it says, architects work notoriously long hours, so much so when the, that when you calculate an hourly rate, it doesn't go very far. So what step, this is a hypothetical question, mm. what steps could you take to make sure your time is valued by others as much as it is worth to you. Mm. So yes, we discuss. Uh, yeah, please discuss. And okay. I know what we do. Um, so Pride Road, the franchise model, we've got a very clear business model and it is all about valuing our time. Yeah. So, so briefly, it's about doing our concept design drawings which are hand drawn in front of clients and we charge for them mm -hmm. so it's really visible and apparent what we do our physical drawings the client sees and they see their ideas develop and they can understand their value mm. and then they buy into the whole process absolutely um yeah. that's that's a really kind of good place to start and and your you know the base question um, about how we charge for our time is a really good place to start because I was thinking about that that value prop proposition. You know, we provide a service through a, our skill set, so we are charging for our time. And effectively, we have to decide: okay, our time is the cost of living plus the cost of running a business plus a markup, which is a profit, right? Which is a profit level. Um, so it always comes back down to what's a reasonable profit to make, right? Because we know, broadly speaking, how much it takes to service our families or our households or whatever it is, or at the scale of a business, what it takes to pay staff salaries and all the associated costs. So that, you know, coming back to your point, you know, demonstrating the value which underpins a reasonable profit is, is really essential because you're saying that that amount of profit is the level of skill, the level of specialism, and the level of responsibility that you're taking. So your process of sitting down with clients and showing them through a concept hand drawing how your design process works and therefore your skill set and your specialism, how it's applied, demonstrates that value beautifully. Uh, you kind of got one step ahead of me in my notes because I thought we'd spend the first 10 minutes building up to, but how do you demonstrate that value? And then, oh, we'll go back. But you go, we'll, we'll go back. <laughs> we'll It'll be fine. It's a, it's a conversation, it's not... It, it is, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's interesting that to me, certainly, you know, to look outside the field of architecture, you know, at skill, specialism, responsibility and, and the value of that skill kind of affecting the, the level of remuneration and a brain surgeon, for example, 
very highly skilled um, and is sort of remunerated to the same level. A train driver has a different skill set, maybe a greater responsibility, and also therefore has quite a high remuneration. What perplexes me sometimes is people like teachers um, are, you know, they have to be highly skilled to manage the people in their classes. I'm coming back to architecture, don't worry. Um, but the, the value of their input, as a social value, it's immense, but as a kind of measurable market value, it's, it's hard to define, if you like. And for architects, what we've always struggled with is the fact that a lot of the quality of the outcome of what we do depends on the social value it delivers. So whether it's with an individual client who is incredibly satisfied with the work you've done to improve their life. Uh, this is exactly what I was trying to avoid, but this is my son, <laughs> one of my twin five-year-old boys, who was supposed to be out. Sweetie, I'm just talking to some people, all right? Um, we're not doing a take. <laughs> um, so it, when you've got your market and your, your niche, which we'll come on to, demonstrating how you deliver value to that is really important. And where it's not, sorry, socially measurable, then you have to be, you have to come up with new ways to illustrate it. Okay, so illustrations of value. Again, is... I'm, not, I'm gonna knock you right off here. Good. Um, when, when I was training, when I was just newly qualified, um, mm -hmm. or doing my part three or whatever, I was kind of looking at pricing jobs. And yeah. one of my directors said to me, that when you cost a job, it's roughly, you split it into thirds. I think yeah. a third overheads, a third your time, your staffing, and then a mm. third profit. Yeah, cost, profit, and overhead equal thirds, mm. or roughly is a, is a base assumption. A bit like an architectural project is a third to planning, a third through the detail design, and a third through delivery when you work out the fee. Mm. on the output on the other so side thirds come third, into it a lot yeah so does that third 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 still stack up in your world um no <laughs> not 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 precisely um because the um, the larger a business the costs sort of ramp up so we have like a multiplier we take mm -hmm. um we start again with the cost of our staff's time you know and so we charge for that that has uh, a multiplier which gets gives us that overheads if you like the vat bill the pi insurance all the you know running an office the rent the business rates all of that mm -hmm. that multiplier varies a little bit year on year but is anything between about 1.7 and 1.9 mm -hmm. uh, so it's almost the the two parts of the third and then when it comes to profit it's a bit like um well, then it, you have to look at the, the project you're doing, the level of specialism and skill that you're delivering to it. And, and you mentioned also in the sort of spiel or the blurb about this, you know, my specialism is in the later living area. Um, and therefore, if you can establish a value in that area, it's reasonable to effectively play with those third, third, thirds and demand a higher premium for what you're delivering, uh, which ultimately, yes, derives more profit, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. okay. So it, if you, yeah, that, that's, that's where you, the balance gets tipped. And then, you know, when you're talking about 50 to 100 million pounds building contract values, then 
you know, a, a few percentage here or there on, on profit can make a lot of difference to you and your staff at the end of the, the year and the longevity of the business, because the other side of architecture is what you do with that profit mm. um, and whether you reinvest it, some of it, uh, keep it aside to weather the storms that we architects seem to have to weather every, is the cycle three or seven years? How, how often do we have a recession or some sort of downturn these days? Um, and also then you know to reward staff for the effort they put in whenever you can is is part of that as well um, so yeah it's it's not the equal thirds but it's a good starting point uh, okay thank you very much right i'm going to go to a question so right. why should you make the decision to work in a specific field or sector um, because if you're good at it and if you enjoy it then um, you can get more out of it, not in terms, not just in terms of job satisfaction, but in terms of if you establish a good position in a, in a particular sector, as I said, you charge a premium perhaps for what you do um, because there is effectively greater competition from the other side where good clients want the good people that do it. Um, but there is a finite amount of that service you can give. So you can charge more for that amount of service, if you like. So tell me a little bit more about the sector you're involved in. So my, my sector, as I mentioned, is, is the sort of housing for older people sector, which is seen as, or well, has been seen as the, the next boom market for, for residential development for probably maybe the last five or six years. Um, because I mean, the, the argument goes, and it, it's a, a sound premise, there are lots of people who've raised families in a house that is no longer fit for purpose for them. And, and a more appropriate form of housing could be provided. Um, it also is convenient. This is one of the last generations with sort of property wealth. Um, and in 10, 15, 20 years time, this sector that I'm looking at would have changed significantly and I'll have to stay on top of that. But for now, the, the opportunity to offer a quality adaptable home to somebody that is suitable for their future needs rather than having to forcefully adapt quite often a historic property with steps up to the front door, steep stairs, you know, narrow corridors and high maintenance needs, if you like. It seems like a good offering to give to older people as, a, as the last move you want someone to make. And you define it very separately from the, the care market and the care offering, which is then, a, you know, end of life palliative care, the, the area of, of architecture and design that's been actually in a great deal of focus in the past 12 months because of the pandemic. What's had less focus is the sector I work in where, you know, we recently or clients of ours recently opened up a building we designed in Stanmore in North London, which is 100 odd apartments for older people with then communal facilities on the ground floor. But it's designed in such a way that there are separated cores and the building is operated by a staff who can circulate around that building so that they don't have to come into contact with the people living there for Sort of pandemic safety but at the same time there are communal corridors that are generous and sociable so that it is not just like living in a, a matchbox which is the hardest thing to adapt to if you've been living in a house the social question around it is very interesting to me and it just so happens that it's also a a big real estate investment sector at the moment so if you look at property week or anything like that you know every few months goldman sachs is putting two billion into this particular sector with a one operator in the next few years um legal and general you know, these big pension funds yeah legal and general axa uh, are backing respectively guild living 
which is a, a sort of developer operator and retirement villages which is an established group that is looking to add something new to the sort of out of town offer so it's a sector that has the real potential for growth and as an architect it's also a sector that's exciting because nine times out of ten the people that you are getting a planning permission for are doing it in order to deliver the building so you can see your designs realized which is something we miss a lot certainly from commercial architecture working with developers that are in effect flipping sites you know raising land value and selling on a consent so for, for those reasons um, and because you can and have to be a bit more thoughtful about design it's a great niche market uh, to pursue as part of a wider business strategy which is also backed up by my co-directors in other fields you know um, at our size you can't put all your eggs in one basket so how did you get involved in that sector? Um, completely by chance, to be honest. Yeah. Um, by actually in, in a former practice, working on a couple of projects that were housing, were housing for older people and being interested. And that meaning then that when I joined Collado Collins, they were looking for a, an architect who could deliver buildings that had some experience with housing for older people to service this project in Stanmore, which has just been completed, that was pre-planning at that point. So I happened to fit the bill, um, just not, not through a particular focus on that specialism, but rather sort of serendipitously falling into it. Um, and fortunately, you know, the workplace we have in normal times is a place of lively debate and discussion around ideas. Um, because for us, you know, establishing, again, getting a market relevance is about being thought leaders. So we talk about ideas and thoughts and see if we can put them together. And ultimately, it encouraged me to, to get together with a research assistant and write, I think I've waved this yellow book at you before, so write a whole book about the sector, um, which is called Just Living, which looks at the social aspect, the financial aspect, and then some of the sort of accessibility and design aspects. How, how, how would we go about getting hold of that copy? Uh, you would have to, uh, probably the best thing to do is just email justliving at collardocollins.com uh, and then we can circulate a free PDF to you and even post you a hard copy of the book uh, if you really want one, um, because we self-published uh, on the basis that we wanted it to be what we wanted it to be and not to have either the RIBA or one of our clients in the sector with an oversight on it that, that might want to steer it in a certain direction mm. um, but it was a pure thought piece so yes we put it out ourselves and it's it's a it's one to add to the multiplier of the business overheads uh, for the year because the return is uh, as it mentions in the sort of the bio here you know I subsequently invited to speak at conferences or can push myself into the agenda for a conference to talk about something, which then generates an interest around the business and a buzz around the business that means the profitability at the end of that third equation can be reviewed against the quality of the output and therefore can be reviewed upwards. So it's about putting, putting yourself forward as an expert, what, whatever the... Yeah, I'm wary of the word expert because, you know, in any field to claim expertise is to basically offer yourself up to, to being shot down by someone who knows far more than you. So it, it's more to put, it, put ourselves in the space as thinkers, as questioners who care about the social aspect of it, but understand fundamentally the underpinnings um, of the commercial journey that our clients have to go on 
and can support that. So balancing design costs, much as, as you and in, in your pride rope work have to understand the, the journey of, of your clients and give them what they want for what they can afford, but still make them happy because what they want and what they can afford are very hard to reconcile a lot of the time, which is a particular skill set. Okay, so um, oh, we've got another talking point here. Uh, what considerations are there in value in evaluating a sector? So, you know, if you were choosing which sector to go into, mm. uh, as you know, say you're setting up a business, an architectural practice, and you're thinking, mm, which sector shall I go into? What should we be thinking about? Or what should you be thinking about? Well, obviously, without a crystal ball, which would be the ideal thing, um, fundamentally, is there a sector that is buoyant currently that looks sustainable longer term um, or even medium term because you can pick a sector and work it well and move it on um, i mean examples are for example 15 years ago if you were doing as, as we were as a practice um, although it was before my time there if you were doing that fully for sale market residential offer um, quite often one of these master plans where a, a large landowner like a Tesco would have a site that was right for a superstore and then a couple of thousand homes, for example. Um, and that was a great sector to be in because a lot of that mixed use doubling up of brownfield land was was hot in the sort of early noughties. Um, over the last 10 years, private for sale market residential has fallen away. And it's all becoming something called build to rent, which went through a number of guises or build to rent, PRS, um, number of different names for it. And that is a sector that has evolved, is still evolving and is one to, to dig into uh, and look at potentially if you're looking at large scale resi. And I am talking from the perspective of, of a large scale resi architect. Mm. Um, you know, there are co-living sectors coming on, uh, on other, in other sectors, I think, um, you have to look at effectively the, the affluence of your market, its ability to afford what you want to give it. Um, and if you can find that and capture it and there's enough of it, then go for it. Mm. Um, but also be aware, you know, the ideal thing is to identify like in a, if you're doing as, as you know, the pride road thing is that looking at those 1930s semis, if you can find the next part of town that everyone's going to move to after they've just done up all the, you know, all the houses in that part of town are done up, what's the next neighborhood along? Mm -hmm. That's where you look at people moving in and start offering their services, right? So you're kind of looking at the next three to five years worth of work, not just what's around the corner, what can I get tomorrow? So and making sure that it lasts sorry yeah, what what um other sectors are kaleido collins involved in so um the the built to rent is a big one for us mm -hmm. um co-living is something that's coming along uh which is that sort of step between student housing and um full built to rent uh, student housing in itself is is a sector we're pursuing but interestingly it's one where a lot of the student particularly the established student housing developers uh, are reluctant to use architects that don't have experience in the sector mm. so we would have to do a thought piece or somehow establish ourselves as having a reputation in that sector in order to fully pursue it mm. um, and apart from that really we have some small education projects and a couple of small 
public sector housing projects with with housing associations but as our focus is residential it's all about looking at where that market is going mm. effectively looking at what people can afford you know our our younger colleagues don't have that dream of home ownership perhaps that that we had so they're all living in these built to rent properties that we're designing so they're a really useful resource to figure out how it could be done better mm. um you know just as when we researched for the just living book what we noticed is no one's talking to their parents and grandparents about what a meaningful offer would be what an appealing offer would be so the first third even the first sort of i don't know what's bigger than the third um not half somewhere between a third and a half is is about understanding the people i was looking for somewhere between a third and a half i should have gone for third and a third two-fifths 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 there you go thank you not good with fractions me but um <laughs> <laughs> we both really like numbers we keep on coming back to numbers yeah that's it so, <laughs> as long as there's a three Actually, in it we're numbers, fine but maybe that's why we're not accountants <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah so our, our sectors being residential we're always keeping an eye on what the residential market's doing what's interesting mm. now is that the retail and the large out-of-town shopping centers are effectively caving in so there are these large retail operators that run the um what's the one near us the blue waters of this yeah. world if you like down in kent yeah. that are seriously assessing the long-term prospects for that land mm. uh, and whether actually retail is going to generate the returns they want because they're in the business of making a profit as every private company is yeah. and if they aren't then you know keep an eye on all those shopping centers in town that have only got three open shops in them now that are actually prime residential development land and see who's looking at and buying those or who's selling them mm. and you know clients always like architects that can come to them with a site as well mm. um, which is very rare and very difficult to do because everyone likes someone that can come to them with a site mm. um, but you know something like the <coughs> excuse me at the end of the, the the death of high street retail mm. is going to be an interesting opportunity mm. Um, also for that small scale level of architecture where you may have fewer and fewer shops or they become ground floors become somehow a flexible working spaces because people are working from home not commuting but want to go and spend a couple of hours a day around other people with then you know flats above that actually work as a conversion proposition the regeneration of the high street's a great market potentially in the next 10 years but you'll have to have that innovative specialist clever idea to put yourself out there to really capitalize on it and then so you'll have to... are you looking at that alongside your later living proposition well for, for us as a practice that level of detail is too granular mm. so you know individual properties on a high street owned by 10 different landlords you know what would be great would be to get all those 10 landlords in a room and say here's this street bit of street that you all own together you keep your own ownership but we all together go for a planning application that does something for all of them and share that cost and that would be great but that's that's a complete side idea rather than um you know if i if i quit collider collins tomorrow then maybe i'll go and try and make something like that happen but <laughs> at the moment and for the next five years um we have a good degree of confidence if you like in this sector so that we will dedicate to it tell me a little bit more about the sector of later living i know we've had chats offline about mm. it but uh in, in terms of the model, how it's structured it the model, model um how it stacks up a model yes so it is still 
generally market for sale residential, but um, the building includes a whole lot of these amenities and these these services and quite often in order to sort of qualify for the, the use class of C2, which is housing with care, there is a, an offer of care that underpins it a minimum number of hours per week of a level of care that every resident is provided with. Now that could be a variety of different things from secretarial support through to actual medical support and care. But what underpins it is that all that stuff comes at a cost and all of that initial sales in order to appeal to the market is viewed as with at a slightly lower profit level than perhaps market for sale resi. But the flip side is that at the end of the journey, at the end of the customer journey, there is quite often something either called an event fee or uh, an exit fee, which is that then the, the building operator has effectively the right or, or assists with the reselling of that property, but gets a cut of that resale value which could be which is usually a percentage of that resale value and can be on a sliding scale so if you manage to only sort of live there two years it'd be a very small percentage but if you make 10 years it would go up to quite a large one perhaps or relatively large 10 15 20 percent quite often capped at that level yeah. um, but as you can probably understand from that as a building owner operator over 50 years that's a gift that keeps on giving effectively if your average so your opening age is 65 your average age is 85 uh, of people living in your your building and perhaps you they will get let's say five to seven good years there and they would be better years of course than if they were living in their family home that was no longer fit for purpose because they'll be supported but you know the payoff at the end of it is so over 50 years you know, 50 divided by seven going back to numbers is about seven. You're reselling that flat maybe seven times over 50 years and getting a cut of the resale every time. On the one hand, um, I mean, that has been through a process of, of legal, I think, and government review. I think there's a, a more recent process of questioning some of it or the way it's described. But as a financial model for an investor that does not need to go quickly in and quickly out or who thinks they can go quickly in and quickly out by then selling on that proposition to another longer term investor. It's very appealing. Mm -hmm. the, the, the interesting and the difficult thing now is, is having that backed up by actually by market uptake and by sales rates. Mm -hmm. So these are still relatively new housing models in the UK. They're well established in the US, in Australia, in New Zealand, uh, and we look and also in the Far East in Singapore in particular. And we look to those as examples you know, when we're doing our work, but they they have managed to create and sustain this sort of market model um, on the basis that they are able to communicate to their customers the value that it gives to them in terms of quality of life. Okay. So it's a worthy trade-off. The struggle in the UK is perhaps that we are generally a little bit more cynical. <laughs> so if you look at the market research, for example, in a retirement community in the US, the majority of the people that live there prefer it if the concierge knows their name and greets them with it at the door. The majority of the people, if people in the UK prefer it if they are greeted as sir or madam, but are not overly familiar with the concierge and certainly not greeted by name every time they walk in or walk out, unless they've established that protocol. Going back to our pre-conversation about shortening of names and over-familiarity, <laughs> we're picky about that in the UK. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. we're, we're importing a housing model from perhaps more sociable climes mm. 
or climbs with a different sociability. And it's interesting to see what the uptake is. So there are big developments now opening up. So, you know, our clients are, are the building in Stanmore and we have more work with, with them. Um, other operators like Riverstone, who were backed by Goldman Sachs, who I mentioned earlier, are opening or have just launched in the last week their new developments in in Riverside, Fulham, and in sort of Kensington or boundaries of Kensington, I think. So they're extremely high end. It will be interesting to see now, I mean, that they will have had some pre-sales, but how their sales rates go and how that gift works out as to whether it keeps on giving, because you also have to operate and maintain a building yourself for 50 years while you're supporting those people that live in there and getting the, the output of their... Um, they're cycling through the building. There's a word for it, which is churn, which is a terrible word. Um, and But there are other operators out there that are looking at different ways to structure the financial modelling that um, can rely perhaps not on the exit or event fee. Yeah. Um, and more okay. rental offers coming forward. Sorry, I'm going on a long time, no, I know. No, it's fine, it's fine. We'll kind of, um, sort of hit our, our 30 minutes mark. mark. Um, do any of our listeners have any questions to ask? If you do, just pop them in the chat. Let's make sure I can see the chat. Um, and in the meantime, Dominic, is there anything you want to ask me about Pride Road at all? Um, I mean, what, I'm very interested in it and how it's going uh, as, a, as a proposition for you. I knew you've worked hard to get it off the ground. But also, I mean, from your point of view, when you're expressing to your potential franchisees that value proposition, mm. um, it, it's always interesting to hear how you go about that and whether you have a kind of standard pride road approach or if when you're talking to people, they bring something to the table and, and you, in effect, you're coaching them through how they can use that skill set and specialism and to, to kind of take their element of the franchise forward. Yeah, no, we are, we, we've got a model that works and we follow, um, that's kind of what we use as a basis um mm. you know we just do domestic um domestic residential single story two-story extensions loft conversions mm -hmm. basements we don't do new builds um we um sort of operate at the lower end of the market yeah um where it's an area that's underserved by architects uh, so it's easy to kind of stand out and have a USP there. Um, we rely on sort of a, a relatively high turnover of clients. Mm. It's a numbers game. So we need to keep sort of numbers, sort of inquiries in, briefs, prospects, workshops. And, and then as you go through the journey, you know, kind of like the numbers sort of like go down. So, you know, conversion rates from, um, you know, workshops to projects is say one in four. Really? Things right. all, you know, after planning um, or after, even after building race, sometimes clients just, you know, change their minds or they can't get a hold of a builder or they can't afford it or life events. Um, so you've just got to keep on kind of doing that whole marketing thing mm. up front. Um, I mean, the great thing about a franchise is that we do pool our collective resources constantly. So we're constantly reviewing and tweaking the business model. So, you know, if one client sort of gets confused about a certain stage, we'll just pick it up and reinforce it across the across the board. So. Mm. You know, each time we're making the uh, the model more robust, but 
you know, we still, you know, target the same niche. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've kind of set that up uh, to work nationally. And right. yes, there's lots of different, you know, sort of routes we can go off in. But, you know, this works well. And we kind of want to master all of this first before we then start sort of springboarding elsewhere. Indeed. It's, it's an interesting challenge having, having done a couple of those small domestic projects in my mm. past as well. Um, you know, as you say, clients do stop and start. So that conversion rate of one in four is when you need that turnover is kind of, you know, it's almost a full time job to maintain that flow, mm. I should imagine. Um, but it, it, yes. And, and then the other side of it, of course, and something I was, I was sort of thinking of raising as a question is, you know, I sometimes have friends or friends of friends who oh you're an architect can you recommend me a local architect because I'm looking to do this or you know we had an architect but they only you know we only paid them up to that building regs point there's this obsession with what a building reg set is because then you know they've got a, a builder that says give me some building regs drawings and I'll sort you the rest and ultimately they regret it on the back end mm-hmm. so you you the two two sort of threads on that one how do people find you? And, and two, how do you persuade them that keeping you through the journey is actually better value for them? Oh, that's interesting. So people find us through uh, sort of a lot of marketing, a lot of mm-hmm. networking from website, sort of Google is our friend. Um, so, you know, kind of all roads lead to Pride Road kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, once you're established in an area, um then keeping hold of clients um we sort of simplify our uh, proposition into three stages first stage is the concept design workshop second stage is planning third stage is the building regs and right. we wrap everything as much as we can into that building regs because yeah. don't want to pay for anything else afterwards um and so, you know, that that set is 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 getting tighter and tighter. And and right. that's it. So it's, you know, they either, you know, stop at planning or you know, they commission the building and stop after that. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. We we do need to wrap up. We do. We, we could do. talk all evening. Do. I do like keeping to time on these. So um thank you very much for coming on. So if um, anyone wants to sort of uh, have a look at your book again, how mm-hmm. do they get hold of it? Uh, they can go to our website and look on the publications page for Just Living or email justliving at collardocollins.com and we'll send you a copy. Fab. And what's your website? Uh, collardocollins.com. Okay. C O double. Well, I won't spell it, it'll be yes. in the bio. <laughs> okay. Um, fantastic. Well, thanks for listening to Architecture in the Den. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please comment and subscribe. And if you really like it, you can even share it. There you go. Uh, if you're watching this on uh, YouTube, on, this is also available on as a podcast on Spotify. And if you are interested in coming on the show as a podcast guest please get in touch we like talking about all things architecture um especially around the business side of it and the journey into architecture i think that's uh it's uh two two big ones for architects that is mm, yes yeah. yeah so please do get in touch and yes thank you thanks for listening and 
goodbye.